All right. Well, good morning. All right. So I know we just read from Ephesians uh, 1, 15 through 23, our text is actually going to be Ephesians 2, looking at verses 1 through 10. But it's helpful to have some context as to what was going on before uh, what we're about to get into. And uh, of course, as we study Ephesians 2, this will, uh, what we just read will kind of come back into play as well. Now, um, if you'll indulge me for a moment, I know we're halfway through January, but I'm still kind of in the pattern of it being the new year at this point. So uh, one of the things I love about the new year is it gives me the opportunity to look back and kind of see how did I get to this point? What is God doing in my life? And part of that is I love to look back at old pictures, old memories, uh, things that God has led me through, and maybe even give, give me a chance to see what did I used to be like? What is God doing at that point in time? So let me go ahead and throw up an example. Here's one right here. All right, so I'm clearly at my best I, uh, as I try to walk into that. I'm probably about five years old right there. And you can see I'm prepared for anything at that point in time. I don't know how many bad guys I'm taking out, but I need at least four guns to do it. And uh, of course, I'm wearing a, a Zorro mask, but I misunderstood what my name was supposed to be. I was calling myself Zero to everyone who would hear me <laughs> because I didn't quite get it. It's just one of those cute things a five-year-old does that... It's embarrassing now, but kind of funny to look back at. So, of course, we can make this really theological that, of course, I knew I was nothing without Christ and I had to call it out to everyone, but no, I was just five. So, but one of the things I love about looking back is not even just looking at me and who I am. Whenever I look back, it tells me a lot about who the Lord is as well. Because, of course, in the moment, we're going to miss a lot of the things that the, that the Lord is doing. We gain perspective when we reflect on what he's led us through. We may gain some understanding of his character, his goodness, his faithfulness, and who he is. Now, of course, the best way to understand who God is to look at his word, but it's always helpful to look back and see where was God leading us through. So here's another picture. All right, now you can't really see it very well, but this is the first time that I preached, and I'll put that in, in air quotes. I'm a junior in high school at this point. Um, still as nervous then as, as I am now. <laughs> Some things don't really change. But what I love about this picture, it's not even necessarily that I'm in it, but it was such an important time in my life and how God was working. Because if you would have asked me up to that point, Matt, what do you think you're going to do when you grow up? What do you think God is leading you to? I would normally say, well, I don't really know for sure, but I know that I will never pastor and I will never, ever preach. Seriously, that is what I would say. Because my dad, being a pastor, I'd seen a lot of things growing up. If you think uh, being a pastor is easy, then yeah, it's really mistaken. And so whenever you think about that, and when, as I reflect on that, I see a lot of humor in that picture because, of course, now I've gone through seminary, now I'm pursuing something in ministry, trying to serve here at Emmanuel. But also, you know, when I look at this picture, I see just the kindness and how gracious the Lord is too. Because when I see myself on paper, I don't fit into the mold of, of a preacher in any way, shape, or form. I'm going to trip over my words today. It's going to happen. I'm going to lose my train of thought. 
It takes me forever to write sermons and I get really, really nervous. Like I lose sleep like nobody's business whenever I get ready to preach. But God is so gracious and kind that he allows us to be a part of the work that he's doing. And where I am failing, God is, is working. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm reminded of that even, even now as I'm here before you. So now you may ask, okay, Matt, well, you've led us down memory lane. What in the world are you trying to convey? What are you talking about? How does this have anything to do with Ephesians chapter 2? Well, we have to understand that as we look at Ephesians, it's going to give this perfect picture of what we looked like before we knew Christ. It's every detail about us and who we were and our sinfulness is going to be exposed. And as we compare that with who God is in verses four through six, we're going to see this vast contrast to show how gracious and kind and good the Lord is. And as we reflect on that and our identity now being in Christ, it's now our purpose to glorify him with our lives. We're going to see our God-glorifying purpose in Christ. So let me go ahead and give us kind of the title of the sermon. Go ahead and give us the point so then we'll have a framework of where we're going. So the title for today's sermon is Made Alive for His Glory. And as we look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we're going to see, number one, our dead condition before Christ, verses 1 through 3. We're going to see our alive condition through wondrous grace in Christ, verses 4 through 6. And then finally, our third point, we're going to see our God-glorifying purpose in Christ, verses 7 through 10. All right, so now let's finally get to the text. So let's go ahead and start looking in uh, chapter 2. Let's look at verse 1, and we'll see our dead condition before Christ. Let me read it for us. And it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Now, we're going to slowly work through verse 1 just because so much of 2 and 3 hang on verse 1. But as we look at Paul's assessment of us, he doesn't hold anything back, does he? When we look at Ephesians, uh, when we look at um, this first verse, he's talking to the church in Ephesus. He's talking to believers clearly. And so as we see what Paul is saying to them, we can apply that to us. What does he say about us? We are 100% spiritually dead without Christ. We're not just ailing. We're not just limping along or, or sick. No, we are dead, kaput, sunk, over the hill, whatever you want to say. That is who we were before we knew Christ. Now, this doesn't fit in very well, though, with our, our current modern context, does it? What does the world say about us? What does the world say about mankind? It normally says that man is, is good. You know what? As long as you stay in your lane, you pursue your own truth, and you don't interfere with anyone else in pursuing their truth, that you are a morally good person. Anything that you do that is seemingly unselfish is now grounds for faith and humanity restored. 
But what does Scripture say about us? We've already seen there in verse 1, but I want to make clear on the basis of Scripture that mankind is dead, sinful, broken, and hopelessly lost without Christ. We were stuck in a hole that we couldn't get out of. We were ensnared in a trap in sin that we couldn't escape. It's like we were in quicksand. Anything that we did only pushed us further away from Christ, pushed us further away from who we were meant to be. And it all began back with Adam and Eve. Now, I know a lot of us probably understand this story. A lot of us probably know this, but it's so crucial to our deadness that we have to go back and revisit it. So as we understand, the Lord created everything as we know it. Every bush, every tree, all the universe, and of course, mankind, Adam and Eve. Now, he gave them the one very simple rule, don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And importantly, what was the penalty if they broke this rule? For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But of course, we know what happens. The serpent tempted Adam and Eve. He didn't control them. He didn't make them do it, but he distorted the truth. He lied to them, for he is the king of lies. He said, surely as you eat of it, you will not die. But of course, we know what happened. As soon as they ate of the tree, mankind was irrevocably changed. Their eyes were opened and they were ashamed and aware of their sin. They knew that they were naked. They had disobeyed God. And in a split second, everything that we knew as man was changed. We had this relationship with God, but we broke it. We were rebellious to God and his rule. And of course, as Adam and Eve sinned, as we've already seen, one of the biggest consequences is now that we have this thing called death, both spiritual and physical. In the moment, they spiritually died. That connection that man had with God was immediately broken. But of course, they also physically died. And as they died, that spread down to the rest of mankind. In Romans 5, it would explain that as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all had sinned. You see, sin is this terrible curse that we can't shake. No one is innocent. No one is immune to the draw that sin has on us. Romans 3 would say it this way, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone, everyone has failed at God's standard. There's nothing that we can do to overcome it because we're not perfect. And even most of the world would say, well, I'm not perfect. And that's the problem because God cannot accept sin in any way, shape, or form. As we continue, we'll see just before Romans 3.23, it says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now we're going to chase a theological rabbit real quick, just because every time that we talk about our sin and we talk about who we are, it's going to come up like, well, what about the good things that I do? I know scripture says that no one seeks God, not even one, but what about all the things in my life? I can say like, oh, well, I volunteer for this um, nonprofit or something, or oh, I serve my neighbor in this way. Maybe I cut their grass, or I adopted a puppy. Clearly that has to count for something. It has to count for merit before God, right? Well, let me give you an example as to why that doesn't work. 
So back in high school, I used to work at the, uh, the highest of pizza establishment, Domino's Pizza, okay, <laughs> clearly. And uh, this one day in particular, I was uh, pulling the pizzas out of the oven and I was slicing them up, putting them in a box, ready to send them out. Now, this one particular day though, there was an extra topping that I had never seen on a pizza before, and I've never seen it again. Somehow, as I was pulling out the pizza, a giant spider had gotten baked into the pizza. It's gross. Yes, it's as bad as you think it is. It is terrible. And then, now you didn't say, well, Matt, did you, did you scrape it out and try to serve it to the customer? Did you try to cut it out in some special way? No, of course not, because you know that once spider is baked into your pizza, your pizza is bad, okay? That doesn't take common sense. It's just, it's just there. You just know it. And in the same way, like, yes, there was all these wonderful toppings on there, the pepperoni, the cheese, the flaky crust, all of this, but it doesn't matter because the spider ruined the rest of it. It's the same way with our sin, Okay. Our sin is so pervasive. It taints us to the core. It doesn't matter what good, good that we do. It's all to serve ourselves and it can't overcome the sin that is in our lives. No, it's just as Isaiah says, all our righteous acts are as filthy rags before the Lord. No, we are dead to the core through and through. That is who we were. Let me take a quick step before we get into verses two and three. All right, so now that we see that we're dead in sin, we see that our plight only gets worse the deeper down we go. Let's look at verse two. It says, in which you once walked, referring to our sins and trespasses, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, not only were we dead in our sin, we live in a world that is in complete rebellion to God. And this world is under the sway of the enemy himself. Now, it makes some sense. We kind of understand that, okay, if mankind is dead, we can understand that, well, the world that we live in is going to be a dark place. So I'm not going to belabor that point too much, but I do want to give one example. I want us to see that You know, it's a great thing that we as a church, we celebrate the sanctity of human life. I think that's coming up this next week, uh, the 22nd. It's great that we protect human life, unborn children, that we believe abortion is wrong. We believe they should be protected. But it's sad that we live in a world where we have to designate a special day in order to protect unborn. Our world is that broken that we think that the world thinks that it can just abort a baby at the drop of a hat. I know Roe v. Wade has been overturned, but of course there's always discussion around that. There's always going to be that battle because our sin is truly wicked. Scripture would say it this way, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. So our world is a broken, sinful, terrible place, but It gets even worse that we see it's under the dominion and the sway of the devil himself. Later in Ephesians, it would say this. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I want us to see that mankind has brought a knife to a spiritual gunfight. 
if you can even say that much. We are completely outmatched. We are outgunned in every way, shape, and form because we know that Satan is seeking to destroy us like a roaring lion. He is a murderer from the beginning. He, uh, he is the father of lies and he forever distorts the truth. It's not that he's in control over us. We know that much. Look back at Adam and Eve. It's not that the serpent somehow said, hey, Adam and Eve, you are going to do this. But no, he lied to them. He distorted the truth. And it's, it's the exact same thing that Satan does to us. He uses our pervasiveness of sin to distort what is right, to go against what God says. And that's who we're up against. And before we knew Jesus, we have no defense. We are completely on our own. Do you begin to see the, the, um, the difficulty, just the immense uh, situation and desperation that we were in? We were completely lost and struggling, and it only gets worse yet again. It only gets worse as we continue with verse 3. So let's read verse 3 together, and we'll tie it together. It says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If there was a light at the end of the tunnel for humanity, it's been surely squashed there. We are defined, our very essence is our sin. We are naturally hostile to God in every way. It's not just a part of mankind. No, our depravity is mankind. Now, I know that's really, really harsh. And if you're a believer, you already kind of understand that. But I want you to see that this does kind of make sense when you really think about it. Let's take our kids, for example. I know that they're cute and we love them, but we can even see the pattern of sin in them. Do you have to tell your kids how to lie or how to be selfish? Maybe help themselves to a toy that isn't there or not share. No, we know that, we, that our kids naturally do this. And then even as adults, we do the same thing. We've just gotten better at covering it up. God sees it, and of course we try to get around it, but no, the Lord sees it. No, we are naturally sinful in every way, shape, and form. We were just like the rest of the world, a slave to our flesh with no hope of escape under our own strength, completely void of righteousness or the desire to live unto the Lord. That is who we were. Now, as we read these verses, then we see that we were sunk in every way that matters. The gap between us and God was something we couldn't overcome. We couldn't beat. We couldn't fix. We couldn't restore what was broken on our own. We needed restoration. We needed resurrection. We needed redeeming. We needed a miracle. We needed Christ. Praise be to God, verses 4 through 6 are right there, because verses 1 through 3 are depressing if you, if you sit there for too long. Let's read verses 4 through 6 together, and we'll see our second point. We'll see our alive condition through wondrous grace in Christ. 
Starting in verse four, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God, but God, this text, as I was studying it earlier this week, it just, it, it just wrecked me. Like, I was out in public, I was eating, I was studying, and I just started to weep. Because if you try to make sense of God's grace, it doesn't logically compute. Because we see who we are in context to who God is. Why in the world would he give up his only son for you and me? It doesn't make sense. Because we spat in the eyes of God. We were, we were enemies of God. We had the audacity to raise a fist to a holy God and say, I don't want you. We, only, we were only created to worship him. We offended him. We did the one thing he could not accept. We stood rightfully condemned before a holy and righteous God. We deserve punishment. We deserve death. And God being a just God, justice had to be served. Sin could not go unpunished. It should have been you and me, but it was put on Jesus. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. When we deserved his worst, God gave us his best in his one and only son, Jesus. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In mercy, he spared us from what we rightfully deserve, and in grace, he gave us what we could never, ever earn. Redemption, restoration, resurrection, new life in Jesus. That is what we have because of what he gave for you and me. As condemnation and death entered through one man, Adam, so would an abundance of grace and life come through Christ Jesus. Where we failed in our sin, Jesus would succeed. He's fully God, fully man, lived the life that I could never live on my own. And then because he loved us, because of the grace that he has on us, he took, he took the wrath, the full extent of God's wrath on himself so that we might have eternal life in him. He rose three days later showing himself to be God in the flesh, fully God fully man and victorious over sin and death itself. Praise be to God. As what was dead has been brought back to life. What was lost has been found. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels, I love the story of the prodigal son. And of course, as I reflect on what God has done for us, of course, it comes to the forefront of, our, of my mind. We ruined the inheritance that God had given to us, that relationship with himself. And of course, the son was eating with the pigs and was like, I just want to have something to eat. <laughs> Maybe if I go back to my father, he'll put me on as a hired hand, if nothing else. 
But as he approached, what did the father do? Didn't matter how undignified it looked. He ran toward his son, threw his, hand, threw his arms around him, kissed him on the neck. And as the son says, I'm not worthy to be called your son, he's like, be quiet. Here's a ring. Here's sandals on your feet. Let's kill the fatted calf. Let's have a party. Because what was dead is lost. What is lost has been found. This is worth getting excited about. It's a time of rejoicing. That's what Jesus did for you and me. This takes us right into verse 6. There it says in verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When we come to Christ in faith, which we'll talk more about in a moment, our status in who we are is forever changed, and it's immediately changed. We're no longer our own. We are Christ's. Romans 8 would show that we become children of God and co-heirs with Christ. We are now bonded to him. We are now linked with him. And we get to share in his preeminent glory. And where before we were under the dominion of Satan, we were in a lost and broken world, helpless. Now we share in the power of Christ. Let's revisit what we just read a little bit ago from uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 19, if you want to follow along. It says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in us when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body and fullness of him who fills all in all. He's put everything under his feet, every power, every dominion, everything on this earth, sin and even death itself. We can never be plucked out of his hand. Nothing can threaten us now. We, nothing can separate us from the love that we have in Christ Jesus. The Lord will forever stand as the victor, victor and conqueror of all things. And that's who we stand with now. Let's come to our final point. We'll look at verses 7 through 10, and we'll see our God-glorifying purpose in Christ. There, starting in verse 7, it says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we've been brought from death to life. Now we're linked to Jesus, synced up with him. Now we have to realize that it's all for his glory and his purpose. 
I'm going to say that a lot over the next few minutes, so I'll go ahead and say it again. It is nothing about us. It is all about Him and His glory. We see this clearly in verse 7. It says, And so that for the coming ages, all of the rest of eternity, that His character, His goodness, His incredible grace and kindness toward us would be shown. When the question is asked, what is God like? Or maybe the question is, how do I know that the Lord is good? First, we should look to Scripture. That's our clearest picture of who God is. And then we can even say, well, we know a God exists based off creation. We know that from Romans 1 that we can see that there is a God. But no, you know what? Another great picture of who God is? That he took sinful, broken people and he saved them by sacrificing his own son. When people see you and me, they should see a fountain of grace. They should see Jesus. Because when we had no hope, he gave up his own son for you and me. When we were helpless, he rescued us. He saved us and made us his own by giving what no one should ever have to give. He gave more than anyone should ever have to. He gave his own son. And all should see the grace that has been lavished on us as a reflection as to who God is. It's to see his glory. It's to see Christ has nothing to do with you and me. It's his glory. And we'll see this idea continued as we look at verses 8 and 9. It says, For it is by his grace that we are saved through faith. It's not anything that you've done. We've already talked about this. We can't do anything to earn God's merit. We can't do anything to earn salvation. But just in case you were thinking about it, it says it here again. It's nothing about you. It is 100% a gift of God. It is entirely dependent on him. Even in John 6, in order for us to come to faith, we have to be drawn by him first. The only thing that we bring to the table of salvation is the sin necessary that it took for us, the sin necessary that we needed to be saved. And then even then, the Lord has to draw us in faith first. It's nothing about us. It's not about you and me. It's about God and his glory. Now finally coming to verse 10, we'll slow down for a minute here. It says that we are his workmanship. Workmanship, not a a word that we typically use, but as we look to the original word in the Greek, it, it describes something like a work of art, almost. Maybe like a poem, maybe some type of, of literature. It's beautiful because that's what God's transforming grace is in us. Because we see how terrible we were, we see how ugly we were, but by grace through faith, he took what was dead, sinful, and ugly and made us alive, sanctified, and beautiful in Christ. We are a new creation. Our souls have been reborn. God's saving work, it's it's just beautiful. Yet again, nothing that I can do, nothing about me, but it's all completely about the Lord. Now, as a believer, you may ask, well, what does it mean to be his workmanship? What does this look like on a daily basis? So I've been remade and my life is now about him. What should I see? What should I see on a daily basis? And what does this mean for me? Well, scripture continues. Let's look at the rest of verse 10. 
In the rest of verse 10, we see it says that we were created for good works, good works that we should walk in. Now, I want to be careful. Very easily, we can say, well, now I'm earning my salvation. I'm doing what is necessary for me to be saved. No, go back. You have to see that all we bring is the faith. That's all that we can do. But with this faith, with this transforming grace that is now inside of us, the evidence of our faith is now lived out through our works. When this, something this dramatic and astounding has happened inside of us, it can't help but be seen by others around us. There should be fruits of our labor. There should be evidence of what God has done. And as we do this, we should have this innate desire to live for him in everything that we do and give glory to God in all that we do. Because yet again, it's not about us. It's all about God and his glory. So with this idea in mind, then, we should ask questions to ourselves. Things like, well, where has God placed me? How can I live out the Christian life so that others may see God's work inside of me? What does it look like to be a follower of Christ in my workplace? What's a coworker that doesn't know Jesus? How can I begin to at least build a friendship with him, at least try to share the gospel with him? What about, as my identity is rooted in Christ, what does this change in my understanding of being a spouse or a parent? How has the Lord gifted me spiritually to serve his church? Why am I not stepping up for things that, I'm, that I've been gifted in? How can I serve my church and the fellow believers around me? How can I be a good neighbor? What does it look like to love my neighbor as myself? How can I reach that person for Christ? So I know as we've worked through these verses, the last verse kind of fills in the application in a sense. Essentially, we are, as we've been saved, we're to live this out so that others might see. We are to be a living sacrifice from Romans 12 or maybe um, to let our light shine before men so that they would look up and glorify our Father in heaven. But I also want to pull back just a little bit too. I don't know where you are right now as a believer. Um, A lot of today's message is essentially the gospel. And I don't want to say, ah, now you have to do this long list of things in order to fulfill our calling. But I do want us to look back and say that as we look and study the gospel, we should always have this innate hope inside of us. As you're maybe going through something, maybe you're struggling with something. I know personally, I've been exhausted, especially over the past couple weeks. When I look to the gospel, I see rest because my sin has been nailed to the cross. The biggest problem I had has now been solved. I have this relationship with Jesus that I did not have before. There is hope and there is grace and there is love. And if nothing else, I want you to look at the scripture today and be like, man, I have forever hope in Jesus. And as you reflect on him, let that work its way out through you. How can I share the gospel with somebody? Who am I supposed to um, befriend and grow with together here at this church? How am I supposed to live for him where God has placed me? 
Now, if you're an unbeliever, though, the application's quite different for you. The reality of verses one through three, that is still on you, and that is still you. You are dead. You need a savior. You are lost. That relationship with Jesus, that's not a reality for you yet. And my question to you is, what is holding you back? Why haven't you placed your faith in Jesus? What is what's doubting you, or what are you... Um, What's keeping you from looking to him in faith? And I want to be very clear, there is no middle ground here. Jesus is either Lord and Savior, or he's nothing to you at all. It's not that, oh, I'm vibing with Jesus, or oh, we're friends. No, Lord or nothing. And where are you? Where are you at in that, in that question? Look, I want to talk with you. I'm sure Hunter, wherever Hunter is, I'm sure he would love to talk to you. I'm sure whoever is close by to you wants to share the truth of the gospel. They want you to know the truth because we have joy everlasting in him. Will you accept Christ today? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we are so unworthy in every way of your sacrifice. Lord, you love us. You draw us to yourself. And I'm, I'm just overwhelmed, God, by my own sin and struggle. Lord, thank you for your goodness, your wonderful character, your faithfulness to us, even when we still continue to mess up. Lord, I pray that you would help us to seek your face, to dig into your word, to just ask the question, Lord, how can I serve today? What does it look like for grace to be lived out so that others might see it? Lord, I pray that you would impress this upon our hearts. Let your Holy Spirit work in us. And Lord, thank you for the forever hope that we have in you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.